0: Welcome, everybody, to the Tech Meme Ride Home Experience for Wednesday, December 1st, 2021. Uh, We are joined today by a very special guest. We have Vlad from Bloomberg here, um, and we're going to be talking about Gaming and free-to-play games, and how the gaming um, economy is changing. But we've got a lot of other news that's been going on in the last couple of days that um, really, really deserves some some inspection. Um, and that primarily concerns Jack Dorsey, of course, leaving Twitter as CEO, followed by a fairly epic announcement today uh, that a Square is being renamed Blocks. And um, I don't know, Brian, what's your what's your first take, and then we'll, we'll really get into this.
1: Uh, how long of a sigh <laughs> can I do? Uh, first, they told me to call Google Alphabet, and I said nothing. Then they told me to call Facebook Meta. Okay. Um, the the thing is, we've already discussed this to a certain degree. Where I feel like you know the 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 easy analogy is the "Hey, fellow kids" sort of meme thing. But at this point,
0: this I'm is your favorite like, meme though. You really like that one.
1: It is. Well, listen, um, um, uh, what's his face lives in my neighborhood. He, he throws the, the big, uh, Halloween party every year. Okay. Um, Steve Buscemi. Yes.
0: Oh. Um, <laughs> you you uh, literally meant the gift guy or JIF, whichever, yeah, yeah, no, you know, Steve, okay.
1: Steve Buscemi lives down the hill from me. And he, 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 he did this Halloween, uh, dress up as the hello fellow kids.
0: No. Thing about candy. Yeah. He oh did my.
1: No. there's, there's pictures online. Look it up. Okay, um,
0: that's that's pretty awesome.
1: What what I've been thinking of today was, and this is a way older reference, but do you remember when George H.W. Bush, the father Bush, got in trouble, or or made, what people made fun of him for being like "message I care"? You know what I mean? Like I
0: I, he, I think so. I might have been seven or eight, but yeah. yeah. yeah
1: but he, he was trying to be like, "Look, I get it. I'm hip," you know. I The thing is, it used to be that when you do uh, a brand change, a name change, it's a sign of desperation. Sure. Yep. And, and I'm not saying that either Meta or now Block are in trouble as companies. Clearly, Block is growing, you know, <laughs> is on the up. But it's like I did that piece today on the show where we're, uh, Kevin Roos was asking, like, you know, is it, is it boring for these founders? It's, it's no longer fun anymore. It just feels to me, it's, it's so thirsty now, the, the desire to be cool, the desire to be like, uh, message, I get it, that I'm, star- I'm starting to get tired of it. <laughs> So you asked me what my impression is, and it is literally that I'm tired of this. But all right, that's that's me being grumpy. So yeah, what's your yeah,
0: opinion? old old man buscemi over there. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, actually, I'll I'll let Vlad um uh, chime in if you'd like, because um, I have I have thoughts, of course.
2: Yeah, I, I didn't thought you guys were going to be so jaded about all of this. <laughs> um, I'm excited. <laughs> it's me. No, it's me, Chris. Chris no, yeah, it's Brady. it's really Brian. Yeah, Chris is way more into this. To me, I mean, let me me just put my credentials out there. I've been covering tech and especially smartphones for over a decade. And there was a time over the past decade uh, where it felt like I was doing the same thing. It's just the year changed. Um, But now things are dynamic and less predictable. And I will say there are three distinct rebrandings that we've referenced here. First of all, Google and Alphabet was effectively like an accountancy thing where the alphabet parent company umbrella company yes, was more to, I don't know, avoid antitrust considerations and yada, yada, yada or present different sort of results to investors. It's one aspect. The meta rebranding is one where it, to me, is the most explicit acknowledgement from a company that its brand is toxic because the moment they did it, they did WhatsApp by meta, Instagram by meta. Now they're running ads and it's all meta, meta, meta the Facebook name is being pushed way to the background. It's just one of the services of the overall company. So they're, you know, whitewashing their brand. F- fair enough. Now this block or blocks uh, rebranding. It's block. It I was wrong. It makes sense because it speaks to the fact that it's a bigger company than just Square, right? Because Square is just one service, but they have Title. Uh, a few days ago, they announced, well, Title announced this initiative of trying to pay or compensate artists more fairly relative to how many people listen to them and so on. And I think overall, it speaks to Jack Dorsey's whole, um, like the thing that's more of a priority, the thing that he's passionate about, which is, as Chris mentioned, developing new sorts of economies. Uh, I don't know that he's necessarily focused on gaming, but he is looking at entertainment, music, how people uh, spend money, exchange money, et cetera. And I will say for myself here in Asia, uh, if you want to get any sort of startup funded today, uh, FinTech and management of money is effectively the number one way to do it. Like more than 50% of VC money in Asia is going to that kind of thing. Digital payments.
1: Can I, before Chris jumps in, so because I'm being the grumpy Gus, let me make my case real quick. Um, when I say that this is thirsty to me, it's because what I'm seeing here is, like, literally—and and Kevin Roos said this in the piece that I mentioned on the show today. That like I pinned his
0: the, piece to the top, by the way.
1: Yeah. And these you guys? Sorry?
0: Oh, no. Oh, sorry. Uh, swipe left, and then you'll see it. I pinned two tweets so far.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so the the point that Kevin Roos made that I'm arguing for is that because all of the energy, because all of the talent is basically like, what am I gonna join? A web two company? It feels so transparent to me that it is that hello fellow kids thing of just trying to not only attract the talent to to your company, And, and and, and listen, I believe that Jack does believe it. I, I'm willing to Uh, give Jack the benefit of the doubt in terms of believing this sort of transformational disruption thing um, more than I'm willing to give it to Zuck. But it just feels so transparent to me that this is like, hey, no, we're still relevant. We're still here. And, And this is the thing. All of these companies are approaching 20 years old. Uh, they're all at least 15 years old um we're seeing a generational turnover in the executive suite but it just it just feels to me so obviously trying to be relevant to the energy of what's going on in the valley and i don't know that i don't know that I don't know that this would fool anybody. I don't know that just because you change your name to Block that all of a sudden people aren't, go, aren't going to go to, uh, you know, a, a Web3 startup or a crypto startup just because you change your name.
0: Okay. I, I, I believe I understand your, your position. And, I, you know, it's, it's, it's fair. And I think there's some validity um, just on the face of that. Like, yes, in terms of winning relevance, if you think about um, IBM or you think about Xerox or you think about a bunch of other companies, Nokia, you know, that were big in their heyday and then gradually couldn't actually make the shift to the future that a younger generation was expecting or building off of a set of new assumptions about how the world actually would operate, um, you know, that are not based on the past, the classic innovators dilemma problem, then sure, I I think that you're more right in that with Zuckerberg than with Jack. I mean, the fact that Jack had sort of, you know, two things going on simultaneously. One was social media, which has turned kind of into a cesspool, and then the future of, you know, money and commerce. And he very clearly has stated that Bitcoin, you know, he believes is the future. And that is something that's not built yet. Whereas Zuckerberg, although he made a big bet on Oculus and VR you know many years ago it feels like that's the one that is the least accessible to build on whereas for those who want to build those who want to create those who are in developing countries and other places that are not well served by today's generation of technology or banking frankly then crypto provides uh, an avenue to actually bring many many more people around the world into the fray so when it comes to being a founder and having a vision for the world that you want to build and you want to participate in and you want to actually support. I, 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 it just, it feels like one, he had Elliot management kind of like on his shoulder, you know, telling him, Hey, you've got to meet these goals Mm -hmm. in this amount of time you've got Congress and the government and everybody else blaming Twitter and social media and Facebook for all the world's problems. And then you've got, you know, there's another thing that you're working on, which is like the future of money, which is, Enfranchising small businesses and enabling a new type of and set of behaviors in the what Lee Jin calls the ownership economy um and that just feels like so much more you know exciting like alive and, like yeah, interesting don't
1: get me wrong if I were jack, I would given the choice <laughs> i'd I'd move in the square direction as well in the block direction and the blockchain direction. It is more interesting, it's still new. Uh, people don't hate you for it yet, although gamers seemingly hate. <laughs> hey, we, we can get into that yeah, yeah, yeah. later. <laughs> but I, I get it. I do get that. Um, maybe if Jack had gone first, maybe I wouldn't be gone first. in what? Under- oh, brightest.
0: before Zuckerberg in terms of the yeah, rebrand. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um. Well, I guess I would I would wind it back a little bit. You know, one is it does feel like Zuckerberg. The way that I understand the way that he moves in the world and in the, the, the business world in, in particular, is he's always watching behavior and trying to find opportunities to either buy it or commoditize it by building it and turning it into a first class experience within his own platform. And then kind of disabling you know, the, the enemy or whatever by basically saying, look, we've more or less got the same thing that they have and it's, it's fine. It's sort of like Microsoft Teams and Slack. You know?
2: That's a really charming way of describing monopoly behavior
0: if true true because you can basically um come uh not commoditize but um you can use your success elsewhere to basically give you an advantage in the market that your competitor is in so let's set aside the monopoly conversation just for a moment because that's also interesting um but when it comes to the moves that i've seen jack making like at twitter but also in square um and acquiring title and uh cash app And all of those things, like that seems like that's actually setting up a big platform that has a number of small, I mean, literally the name makes so much sense, you know, block, like it's a set of building blocks to build for this new future that's more participatory, more engaging um, and interesting. So I guess I feel... And maybe it's because I've spent more time around like developers. And so Jack's approach feels more like a system architect, whereas Zuckerberg's is more sort of like a media and behavior you know, engine where he wants to like capture this new media environment, which is the metaverse. And Jack is like, let's build the building blocks to enable other people to build cool shit for the next 20 years.
2: I, I have to almost entirely agree with you there, Chris. I, I do feel like both of them are dealing with unspecific promises about the future. Right, You can't be precise about these things. But when you looked at what Zuckerberg was presenting, it was boiled down to a repetition of the word experiences. Yeah, right. Big time. Uh, like and,
0: 8, and hand times.
2: gestures. Mm-hmm. Right? Experiences, hand gestures, and somebody reminding him to blink occasionally <laughs> on <along> the camera. <laughs> Where, whereas with Jack Dorsey, I mean, you can believe in his vision or you can not, but it does feel like he's trying to do something new. He's trying to, to use your term... Architects. No,
0: actually, so so this is where I would say no, because this has actually been in some ways the dream all along. And the fact that, you know, Jack spun up Blue Sky and now the guy that was in charge of Blue Sky, which is, of course, Twitter's um, initiative to decentralize Twitter and to basically create a competitive marketplace for social media where there can be multiple different algorithms that determine the sort ordering of the feed, which then everyone can have their own decoherence and incoherence in what they you know, perceive or consume in terms of the media landscape. Like you could have a million parlors that are built off of the same protocols that Twitter supports, and it's a more competitive marketplace because it becomes less ex- like, interesting to own the firehose of, of content. Like, from the very beginning, and at least this is my sense, you know, Twitter was a decentralized platform. Like, I was there for it. Like, it was built on Jabber. It was built on XMPP. And we were trying to build a federated social web. Jack was there for those conversations. The fact that Zuck is now talking about it, it, like, to me, like, rings so hollow. So when you say that they're trying to build something new, I actually don't think that's true. I think what's new in this moment is blockchain technology and the world computer. We didn't have that 20 years ago when we were trying to decentralize the social web. So we had to build centralized social platforms to figure out what the patterns were for this type of software now we have them now we can essentially you know scatter them to the winds those patterns can be repeated that's what's happening in most web3 apps and now they can start building the next generation or era of innovative apps and services without necessarily having to go through a centralized service now that i think is anathema to what zuck would prefer i think zuck still wants all roads to lead to rome but i'm not sure that jack wants that
2: and, and I will say, when I say something new, what I mean is something that doesn't yet exist, right? Something that we do not presently have. In terms of uh, maybe philosophy that Dorsey has pursued, we, we can maybe draw that line. But one, one small note there is some of the stuff that he's promising with this open source approach, Twitter first effectively cut off when you had a whole bunch of Twitter clients. And Twitter said, "Okay, we're going to buy you guys. We're going to cut you guys. We're going to limit the API, etc." Whereas those clients could have done effectively what is promising today, couldn't they?
0: Um, Chris, yeah. Sorry, I was actually I was DMing Jack, and I was like, "Hey, you should come actually join this conversation." (laughs) (laughs) Um, Sorry, you were saying, um, "Is it possible?" Run that by me one more time.
2: Well, just because as you said, Twitter started off decentralized. one of the charming things about Twitter was the fact that you could. Have
0: oh, oh when Ryan. they cut off the apps. Sure.
2: Yeah. So
0: I can speak to this a little bit because I spoke to, um, so Ryan Sarver, who used to head up the Twitter platform. I remember very specifically the moment where he was talking about the question of whether Twitter should have its own app in the iOS app store, because up until whether it was 2008 or nine or something, and Dick Costello was uh CEO, you know, Twitter allowed for all sorts of other people to build and innovate on its platform. The problem was that it didn't have a business model, and like any other platform and any other VC-founded company, eventually you've got to pay the people that paid you to get to where you are. And so there was a moment where it's like, well, two tensions were coming to pass. One is that the experiences of Twitter inside the App Store as the App Store was growing was not controlled or determined by Twitter itself. And so that led to a harder experience and a harder time for people to figure out how to use Twitter when there was essentially no proper client that uh, was built by and maintained by Twitter. Second is that if you had all of these other clients on Twitter, then how would you deal with advertising? How would you build the advertising business that Dick Costello built, having come from, you know, Google, um, when you don't have control over the end user's experience? How do you deal with reporting? How do you deal with, um, you know, justification or validation that, you know, what the advertisers are paying is actually what they're, you know, getting in terms of, um, eyeballs and impressions? So at that point, I think the platform, which was, you know, part of the, I don't know, the big goal, the big idea, became a liability and Twitter had to claw back what it had built in order to build a sustainable business um, and not actually, you know, go away. And so that was that was the decision that was made then. And of course, I think Jack has been working to try to regain developer uh, credibility uh, with you know some lesser or greater degrees of success. Um, recently, for example, Amir Shavat, who I worked with at Google, um, recently became head of developer relations at Twitter, um, or maybe developer platform—I forget which—but he's uh, initiated a whole new push behind developer APIs. And so maybe now there's a greater sense for what should be allowed in terms of developer integrations and what shouldn't based on the business that Twitter is in. And uh, given that the CTO is now the CEO, I can imagine that Twitter is going to go back to its roots in some respects.
1: Can I, um, I'm going to drift this a little bit towards talking about Jack leaving Twitter. Sure. sure. Big picture, but I, I do kind of buy your argument that if Zuck is doing this to solve a problem strategically, maybe Jack is doing what he's doing because he actually believes in it. And that does bring me to, I I don't think I talked about this on the show today, but Mike Solana had a a piece up um, in the last 24 hours about Jack leaving Twitter. And he, Chris, you and I, I think have gone round and round a couple of times about my, like, I'm a bit jaded about Jack and I've always felt that he was, somewhat buffoonish or whatever but um mike's piece reminded me that more than anybody else for some of the ways that i felt like jack maybe was a dilettante and jack was maybe flaky he more than anybody else that has had a social media platform seemed to internalize and take seriously that sort of with great
0: um Power comes great responsibility. Great responsibility,
1: yes. And so let me quote from yep. the end of, of Mike's piece where he says, I think we're all about to realize just how much Jack was doing quietly in stewardship over a power he was wise enough to fear and good enough not to use. Um, and so I'm just curious for Chris or really anybody um, on on the stage here, um, your take on on Jack's, you know, it's only been six years. I, I didn't realize that he's only been back for that short of a time, but his last six years coming back and, and being a steward of Twitter in a time when, frankly, like we said at the beginning of this, maybe running a social media platform is a frigging poison chalice that no one really wants right now.
0: Yeah. Um, I do think, and Jeremiah and the audience actually brought this up um, uh, to me in DM, and sort of mentioned that uh, the the meta rebrand was really all about Zuckerberg sort of saving face and putting himself back out there to the world and kind of recharacterizing himself as a leader of the new free metaverse of some sort or whatever. And in this case, it really feels like, and I think the reason why the business world is so confused about this announcement and the way it's being rolled out is, is because we don't know exactly who Jack is talking to in his announcement right? Like his first tweet about announcing that he was stepping down um, as uh, Twitter CEO is basically like, Hey, I don't know if you guys heard, but uh, I resigned. Cool. And then like a day later, he's like, Oh, surprise, by the way, Square is now block. And now it's like part of this big master plan. And we've been planning this for a year. And, you know, I'm going to hang out with Jay-Z and, you know, all my other friends out there. And um, it just, it's, it's, it's like It's not just like a different style, but the style is very important. It's what it suggests about where they both believe power lies and where they can have the most impact, right? These guys are both billionaires. Like, they can kind of do whatever they want. But in terms of how they want to spend, you know, the rest of their lives or the next 20 or 40 years, like... It feels like Zuckerberg will continue to make the same mistakes. He sort of has window dressing about building open and interoperable platforms, even though he doesn't actually believe that those you know work or that that's what he wants to do. Whereas Jack, it feels like not only he's putting his money behind this, but he's like, look, I've been building up a number of these different elements of this strategy, and I'm going to do something that you guys really don't understand. That just, it's different. I'm just... and. It feels like, or at least the way that I interpret a lot of people's, you know, criticism or commentary about Jack is like, he operates in a way that doesn't, that defies kind of the conventional sense of what a CEO does or how they behave. And so therefore you try to evaluate it based on how you see other CEOs behaving and it doesn't fit. And so you're like, oh, he's like weird and he is. That's the whole point. That's his genius. So I don't know. Like it's, it's, I'm still waiting to see. Um, you know, I think if you're only looking at, you know the stock performance of these companies then you're going to be looking for very different signals and different stuff but if you look at the impact on the world Twitter is much smaller in usage and adoption than Facebook and yet or Meta and yet its impact on the world i would say is many many times over it's it's sort of weight and heft so i think it's you know what i mean like that's why how you have to like think about jack as an individual and as a person who's doing his own thing
2: I have a couple of uh, things to mention here. First of all, uh, I'm enjoying the fact that we're doing billionaire psychology. We're when none of us are anywhere close to being billionaires. No,
0: no. (laughs) But at least, like, I I hung out with Jack like back in the early days, so I at least, you know, have encountered and interacted with him.
2: You breathe the same air as him, so so
0: therefore, I know exactly what goes on in his (laughs) mind. I've even seen his mom's tweets, so I have a deep, deep knowledge of. No, I'm, I'm I'm totally kidding anyways well, continue
2: here's the thing um when you look at the way he presents himself i mean you say that's his genius i would say it a bit more soberly and just say that's effectively his brand his personal brand he's he's somebody who wants to um associate what he firmly believes in let's say that uh as a given with what he's actually doing and being weird as a brand fair enough i would say as the leader of a crypto company he fits in so much better than as the leader of mm. a super valuable company like meta right uh, the expectations of the person who's leading twitter the person who's going to congressional hearings is one set of expectations and even like his facial hair doesn't match those his tweets his uh, the cryptic way that he drops some- on a string of numbers and then people have to interpret them. True. Jack's fashion
0: pres- taste has been very all over the place whereas like Zuck has gotten more and more you know Tim Cook-ian, um, you know if that's a word.
2: Yeah. I, I, f- I think everybody on this on, on this, uh, <laughs> this call co- understands what you mean. So whereas if you, if you look at interviews with like leaders of crypto companies those guys are much more disheveled uh, whether it's hair or dressers or whatever um so he fits into that crowd much better. That, that's one aspect. Another is, if you are a billionaire, do you really want to be dealing with congressional hearings? Like My personal theory for why Jeff Bezos right. felt like stepping down was, hang on a second, I am the richest person in the world, depending on how stock prices between Amazon and Tesla go. Why am I sitting through the and sweating through these hearings, which might incur you know, liabilities to me personally, etc., etc.? Let somebody else do it. Right, my and, company, and, my, and my by company's the doing way, well. The Google
1: guys uh, got out first, saw that first. And, like, yeah. I mean, that, that's the other thing is that, like, 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 we're saying, there is a certain generational thing. All of these folks are in their late 40s and uh, 50s, um, Zuck uh, notwithstanding. Um, and, and, also, so, and also, they've been doing this for the better part of 20 years. And, right. Like, if you're a billionaire, why do you need that hassle? It's more fun, as Kevin Roos said, to, you know, go up in rocket ships and try to go to Mars and stuff like that. Like, why do you need this hassle? There are more fun things that you can do while still being entrepreneurial and, and managerial and whatnot.
3: The best part is how Bezos got a taste of this over zoom because there happened to be a pandemic that seriously enriched him so he didn't even have to go all the way and fly or anything he just had to get on a call and he was already like nope not not doing that again by the way this is uh, just for the audience that's uh emil
1: uh who uh, you sh- you'll recognize from having been on this show lots of times
2: uh, also from space cast uh hello emil um hello. thank you Yes. Um, I just wanted to throw in a second point to back up what Chris was saying about scale because um, this is something that we covered on Bloomberg very recently. It's about Twitter's presence in India. So WhatsApp in India has 530 million users, half a billion people. It's its biggest, single biggest market, predictably enough. Like you could get everybody in the US to use WhatsApp and you're getting to like 60% mm-hmm. of India. Yep. Um, Twitter, its latest reported numbers are 17.5, closer to 20 million users in India. And yet, its situation in the political discourse in the country mirrors that in the US almost perfectly. Every politician wants to be on Twitter, drop the line, and then all the TV networks pick those up, and that's how the conversation happens. And the Prime Minister, Narendra Modi, he has 73 million users, which is, you know... Three times almost four times as much as the number of users within the country so the diaspora is closely monitoring twitter and i can say the same thing about the uk um twitter is huge in japan but i can't tell you anything about it even though i'm here because i'll speak the language and like twitter japan is like its own little giant thing cultural thing so absolutely i feel like this company cannot be judged by just the sheer number of users it has because it has so much in terms of driving the popular conversation maybe because of just how easy and quick tweets are to pick up. It's not a multi-paragraph statement. It's somebody oftentimes lashing out and just kind of shooting from the hip and um, yeah, that's really what I'm trying to say. It's like the quantifiable influence that meta products like Facebook and WhatsApp have it's very different from the influence that Twitter has.
0: Yeah, I think one thing to just build on that, I just I just checked, and it's true, uh, Narendra Modi has 73.1 million followers on Twitter, and only uh, on Instagram, 63.5, which is pretty interesting and, and somewhat telling. Um, well, there are more bots on Twitter. So just <laughs> okay, fair, maybe he has a lot more bots there, but... Still, uh, I think the the point is well taken um, on a number of fronts. You know it is still the case that I think that one connectivity is certainly not you know around the world what it is in the United States. So there are a lot of places that are still using basic phones to access the internet or where their electricity is metered or where access just isn't anything like what we're used to and so these visual rich mediums these platforms like instagram or even you know what oculus is probably going to take require a great deal more reliability in terms of the technological apparatus around this whereas like twitter I, I believe, though I don't know if that's still true, I think you can still interact with over text message, over SMS. So it's universality in terms of being able to get and receive updates all around the world, I think is still very, very important relative to the way in which you know the Facebook Empire has has you know rolled out. But anyways.
1: ZocDoc. ZocDoc.com slash techmeme. And download the ZocDoc app for free. Then find and book a top-rated doctor today. That's Z-O-C-D-O-C dot com slash techmeme. ZocDoc.com slash techmeme. promo code RIDE. Please support our show and tell them we sent you. Experience the perfect blend of style and comfort with Cuts Clothing. Cutsclothing.com,
0: promo code RIDE for 20% off. The other, th- the other topic uh, that we wanted to talk about today was about something else that's changing in the world. Um, not naming per se, but Gaming.
3: And <laughs> before You're we welcome. do that, can I can I just oh please just a quick, really really quick thing yeah yeah um, the the account actually just tweeted that Jack previewed squared twelve years ago today so oh, uh-huh. maybe the timing of this was... and was you know maybe this actually
0: pre ordained pre ordained no pre ordained yeah, I,
3: I feel like I feel like it was planned a little bit I don't know if that's like a week or a month or you know a few years but I thought I that I was telling. Um, yeah, the so other really, really small point I want to make is that um, the, the the confusion that I feel like is going to keep happening between block and blocks. Yeah, I, is that they have the blocks Twitter account? Yeah, not the block Twitter account, which is just hilarious. Given that just a day ago, right, the CEO, of tw- the CEO of Twitter, <laughs> couldn't get the block. Yeah, account. He
0: could have used eminent domain to get it. Why did he <laughs> yes, not?
3: Exactly, and that's yeah. just. Surprising! Uh, to say the it's least. not even
0: used. It's like an account that was that. Oh, yeah, it's a my private God. account.
3: That's it's a private account from that was joined in twenty twelve. I mean, maybe it's used, but but it's, but it's private. We don't know. But yeah, joined yeah, in true, May twenty twelve. <laughs> uh, but yeah, that that was just a small tidbit uh, that I thought was hilarious.
0: That is pretty funny.
3: Um, and, and, and to be fair, someone at Tech actually earlier today was pointing out that Block's as a parent company makes kind of a little bit more sense. And this, you know, there's multiple, like each division of Block. Oh yeah, uh, For, like
0: like it's, it's so block. good, right? Planned, like right? you start with square, and what is like a three-dimensional square? It's it's exactly. like a block, right? And in the block blockchain, like really like I, I tweeted about how this is like sort of Chaya Day level kind of rebranding. That's just like it goes so deep and you're like satisfied by like figuring out the puzzle of it. Anyways, I thought it was very good.
2: Is it too late to rename to blocks? Uh <laughs> Amazon, it makes a lot of sense to me.
0: Well, I think the um they, they, uh, they registered a very Web3 kind of crypto domain, which is Blocks.xyz, which, by the way, is beautiful and was done by, I guess, the Cash Apps uh, motion designer, who apparently follows me. And so uh, really, really well done there. But, you know, they're they're moving off of the dot-com era anyways. So probably, they could probably, you know, be Blocks, Block, whatever they want to be.
2: Well, they also did their crypto service, Spyro, is now Spyro.xyz. Right. Are they starting a trend here? We had an ABC.xyz, now all the Japanese uh, so are that,
0: that way. I mean, I would say that uh, like the XYZ thing has been going on for a little while. It is kind of like the crypto domain, whether it's like islands.xyz, which just launched, or Mirror, which has been around for a while, um, or just a bunch. I don't know how they... It's also they...
1: Like, the, it's like the new io.io.
3: Yes, specifically yes. Specifically for crypto, yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah. I you kind of know if
3: XYZ is available. Block.xyz is? Blocks.xyz. Oh, uh, well, <laughs> might want to grab that. Doesn't know. resolve. <laughs> yeah, I was <laughs> going to say,
1: not anymore. Is is blocks.eth available?
0: <laughs> <laughs> Those are all now being squatted on OpenSea, yeah, and Jeremiah knows about this. Jeremiah was was one of the first to sort of warn me that I needed to get my .eth um, address, and so I did. And um, yeah, anyways, it's a whole different story. All
1: okay. Right. Let me let me yeah. let me grab. Let me grab. Yeah. Um, because Vlad, we, we we sold you on coming on the show to talk about games. Although um, I'm I'm glad that uh, you you, uh, you had so much to say about Jack because uh, Chris and I would have been uh, fist fighting at this point. If, if we had,
0: but, um, <laughs> That's right, old man.
1: Right. Exactly. So um, we want to talk about games broadly, and as I said to you offline that. I, I've been feeling like there's there's some stuff going on that's like in, in gaming that's structural, obviously moving to cloud gaming, but also, you know, moving basically the way gaming is functioning is is changing and, and this is part of the move towards a metaverse type thing and things like that. But um the, the way that I wanted to get into this, it's a story that I I've wanted to do, but I haven't Felt like it was broad enough to do for the tech meme show. But there's been a lot of controversy about the new Halo Infinite game. And um, I don't know, Vlad, if if, if if you could summarize what the controversy is around that. Uh, if not, I mean, I'll, I'll do my best to do it. But um, can you, especially vis-a-vis the, the thing that Halo Infinite is trying to do that sort of new in terms of like aping where gaming is going and like, you know, kind of aping what, uh, you know, um, Fortnite and stuff is doing
2: like, and, and, and what that whole controversy is all about. Yeah, there's, um, I'm not intimately familiar with the halo infinite situation, but, uh, the gist of it is that they introduced the multiplayer aspect of the game as a free to play. Uh, and then there are internal perks and things that you can earn and, so on and, and like, like the, the players' complaints seem to be that the ramp up of effectively grinding through the game isn't particularly enticing. There's a battle pass, which is the fighting games version of a subscription. Um, you buy the battle pass because you do. You play through the game. You earn things. You earn rewards. You earn cosmetics, etc., etc. To me, the, that particular uh, example isn't so important as the broader context and, and the thing that Microsoft is trying to tap into, which is you, what you're mentioning. Uh, I think the best examples of how this is done right are Dota 2 and League of Legends, the two uh, multiplayer online battle arenas on PC, and then also on the mobile front.
0: What about Fortnite?
2: <laughs> yeah. Okay. It, it
0: doesn't uh, count because that's, that's the whole... Anyways.
2: Of course. Uh, I, I, guess, I guess in my mind, Fortnite is just so prominent. Uh, I, uh, I say just, kind of, uh, we
1: just yeah. Well, let, okay, okay, let me let me jump in here. Let me jump in here. Because you mentioned grinding. Alright. So what we're talking about is as opposed to paying sixty dollars to get the new Halo, if you're on Game Pass, you can just play it for free if, if you're a subscriber, right? Except for the fact that you have to the game isn't really fully, not functional is the right word, but you you, you have to jump through these hoops to earn, sort of. Yeah. Right. And, 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 and a lot of modern games, like you're saying, like Dota and, and other things like that, have been like that. And so is this a case of them... T- is this a, again a generational thing, where, where people that are returning to Halo are like, "Well, look, I just want to play the stupid game and have fun, and I don't mm-hmm. want to jump through these hoops," and/or I, I don't know. Like, it, is this sort of like grafting on a business model that maybe this game wasn't the right one to try it with? What's what? What do you think is going on here?
2: Well, I, I wouldn't call it generational. Um, so let me describe this with the thing that i'm really in, intimately familiar with which is a game called afk arena it's a mobile game uh, made by lilith games um over here in asia now the way that it works is the point is reward really so you have dozens maybe hundreds by this point of characters dota and league of legends have the same thing they call them heroes um and in afk arena Uh, you get diamonds. Once you get diamonds, you can unlock um, like a set of cards, you pull the cards, and then you get the more exclusive heroes, right? You hope for them anyway, right? And there's like a small percentage uh, likelihood that you'll get them. Now, what it says is, uh, to your point, you're not getting the full game. You're not getting the full set of heroes. You have to keep playing, you have to keep earning diamonds, blah, 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 blah. Uh, And AFK Arena kind of gives you a hint. You have to go away from the game. Literal time needs to pass in order for your characters to earn more experience, in order for them to progress in the game, in order for you to get the diamonds, to get the cards, to get the heroes. Now, I'm going through this entire process, and it sounds like, oh my god, who wants to play this? It's a chore. It's a nightmare. But it's kind of like playing slots, Right? You you pull, you don't get anything. You pull, you don't get anything. And people have done research on this and what people enjoy about it is, is the unpredictability and they enjoy being in that. Okay. I'm pulling 10 times. I get nothing. And then the 11th time I get like a little bit, and that's a simulation for me to keep going. Dota 2 kind of has the same situation. I mean, I've played like, uh, getting personal here more than 3000 hours of Dota 2. I'm happy I'm not doing that anymore. And it's, it is the simulation of failing. Like, you fail so often that when you get the one little bit, that's mm. the point about why grinding as a game element works. When you get that one little bit, it's so much more rewarding because of the number of times you failed. And in AFK Arena, this is the monetization aspect. If you get impatient, if you're like, "Oh, dude, screw this, I can't wait another week to get the upgrade to the hero in order to progress in the game, you can buy diamonds. And that's where, you know, money starts splurging out because you can buy diamonds for like three dollars five dollars there's multi-packs they're crazy amounts of like 90 dollars and yeah so if you want to buy so yeah they have a battle pass which is over a period of time but if you just want diamonds today right now and treasure troves of them you can get that and the point is if you do that and you get enough of an engaged audience, which is actually a much smaller number than the number of sales that you would want to do with a uh, massive game like Halo, um, you can make more money out of it.
1: Uh, right, because, Games because it's sort of a whale economy. It's that idea that exactly, you know, like 5% of your audience is paying $900 a
2: month or whatever to play, right? Well, Epic Games' lawsuit against Apple revealed this. So it was a case where seventy percent of App Store revenues were coming from gamers, and then ten percent of those were coming. Well, hang on, eighty percent of those payments were coming from ten percent of users. So to your point, it's it's exactly that. Some people get really, really engaged, and then they spend serious amounts of money on those things.
1: So this is interesting to me because there's two things going on. So. It's a different economic model, but you're also saying that functionally, the the gaming mechanism is different in the sense that it's not just it's not just um, leveling up. There's this grinding aspect. There's this random aspect. There's this like it. it there's the the slot machine aspect and. Is, is that part of what's controversial? It is, and not to suggest that it's generational again, like, are, are some, is there some section of the gaming community that's like, well, that's not the sort of gaming that we want to do? Is that
2: part of the controversy? Yeah, that would be perfectly fair to say. Uh, I do feel like it's exploiting human psychology. Uh, for myself with AFK Arena, uh, because I'm playing it right now, I have just said i am not spending money on this because i know if i start spending money it will start small and then it escalates it, like you never go into a game and say okay i'm spending 200 dollars of this because i'm not i'm not a patient person um you always escalate these things and it's addictive um in a way that is just not healthy economically for the people but i will say again coming back to dota and league of legends i think that's where they've struck a really nice balance so With Dota, for example, you don't need to spend money to succeed in the game. It's all about skill. The thing that you spend money on is cosmetics. But then people really like them because, as I say, you spend thousands of hours playing the game, you will get attached to your heroes and to the skills that you've developed with each hero and so on. And then there's the other thing, which is the feedback mechanism the Valve has invented. Sorry, not invented, but really just uh, perfected as far as I'm concerned, which is you buy the the Battle Pass every year. And a proportion of that money goes towards the price pool for the flagship, so-called the international tournament for Dota 2. And this, it happened, I think in October, it was $40 million. So, as a bit of context, that's more reward money for the winners of the finals uh, than the NBA has, than, you know, tournaments like Wimbledon have. Uh, Granted, the players don't get the same salaries as NBA players, but... It, talks, it speaks to the scale of this. And it's, okay, I'm spending money, and I know it's indulgent, I'm just buying cosmetics for a game, but then I'm supporting the game and the professional players who can make a career out of it because I'm part of it. So there is that participatory element as well. I think Halo Infinite, um, the, the backlash that it's getting is probably because Microsoft is only just getting started with this. And things there can improve because there are so many examples on the mobile And the PCC that they can uh, take lessons from.
0: I I think one of the I don't know areas of friction and tension with. Halo Infinite, and I think this is to Brian's point about uh, generational divide. And I would say that less about from an aged perspective and more from an experience or set of expectations perspective. Where you know I grew up, you know, playing Halo um, on, a, on a PC, of course, or actually it was it was a Mac and it was like very slow. But regardless, like I was there. There were like Halo One and um, you know uh, was it Red versus Blue and that era of Halo. And that was I'm, I'm very much dating myself. I don't play that many games, but. Point being, I would have the expectation that if I bought the game from you know, Microsoft or um, whoever it was that owned it at, at that time that I would be able to have and play the entire game. And it was also the case that I would like download the game from the internet and sort of run it locally and there would be servers that you could connect to of course to play online games but for the most part you could have your you know first person shooter experience all by your lonesome. And increasingly again I think a lot of our conversation is about what are the new assumptions or changes in the marketplace that lead to a new set of norms or habits or you know set of expectations from you know players whether it's on social media or whether it's in games and that's that one you're always connected you always have a device with you two like you just can't stand to be bored and so you want to play all the time three like flaunting and emoting and showing off like your character as a representation of yourself is something that is you know quite common and normal and so i mean and there's many and other things that i could it. probably yes
2: uh, I'm just saying, uh, not just not just normal, but
0: important. Okay, okay, thank you. Important. Well, and that's the point. So there was a time where, the, like, you didn't have really that many skins right throughout the game, and now, like as you said, that's like a core part of the experience. Like that's what you're actually buying into, whether it's you know grinding to earn the currency so that you can like buy and unlock those things, or whether you're you know buying NFTs to then outfit your characters in some other you know world that doesn't exist yet. Um, These are all part of a new set of norms and behaviors and expression that is part of a different type of social layer or social experience on the internet. And what's interesting given this whole conversation about rebranding and about big tech companies and about, you know, execs kind of getting bored and moving on to other things, is Halo as a franchise is having to go through a similar type of transformation, where it's no longer the type of game that it used to be with a set of assumptions in the environment that determined how people could access and play. But now it's trying to enter a, a, into a different world, largely defined by what Fortnite has built, and it's trying to catch up. And it's, finding itself kind of caught in between these two modes where it hasn't quite really figured it out yet, and it's pissing off both camps from both generations.
2: And just to back up that point, um, SoftBank just invested in a South Korean startup, and I think it was $150 million. Um, And the point of that startup was they're literally selling luxury brand goods but just 3D versions of them for people's avatars. And this is apparently really popular with young women. Um, And that's where we bring in the whole metaverse thing, which (laughs) I love being skeptical about the metaverse because it's so, you know, airy-fairy promises. But this is a concrete example of that where... um,
0: It's called Zepetto, which is, of course, a great little play on um, Pinocchio. Um, And indeed, it is a metaverse platform where people are, as you say, dressing themselves up in this virtual space. Continue.
2: Yeah. And that's really it. Like, we're talking about branding and naming and so on. It happens at a personal level as well. It's the way that we present ourselves to the world. And going back to your point about always being connected, always being bored and wanting stimulation. Well, we do that at the most basic level with our Twitter avatars is the way we present ourselves to people. But then the more interactive, the more 3D, um, to use Zuckerberg's word, experiences there are out there, apps <laughs> that we have, the more we want to plug into them.
0: Well, this is and what then, the whole that's... PFP phenomenon is about, right? In the context of Twitter, where people are uh, buying NFTs, whether they're apes or lions or, you know, yeah. dicks. Um, and, they're using them as avatars to express affiliation it's it's no different than sports teams before except exactly. now there's artificial scarcity that's applied to these objects and you can say how much you care about it based on how much you spent or whatever it is and so it is a new type of gesturing in the digital environment it's it's totally true it's totally there
2: exactly and the the thing is uh... I mean, there there is like this epic rant to me about IP rights and how misplaced they are in terms of compensating people for creativity, especially in the digital world, right? Um, but the thing that I've noticed with the NFT community is, uh, I mean, I did an article about NFTs and then I got like a few dozen people with lion and ape avatars following me and the lion, the lion people, everyone that they refer to, they're like, Hey King, how's it going? And it's super optimistic all the time. Right. I mean, we've got a few of
0: those folks in the audience right now, actually.
2: And listen, I I don't know if this is a Ponzi scheme. I'm not putting any of my money into it, but just engaging with those people and everybody being so positive as an online community, just in a very particular new way. I'm enjoying that. I, I, I like that. I'm
0: totally with you. I mean, it seems like a very bright spot of the internet. And while there are plenty of rug pulls and there's like all sorts of other bad stuff going on relative to the crap that, you know, I, we're all assuming that Zuckerberg and um, Dorsey are trying to escape, like there is. Look, I, I think what we're trying to unpack here a little bit and using Halo Infinite as a way of maybe thinking about this transition and how uncomfortable it is for some people is because the products, the digital products that allow people to build, to express themselves, to contribute, to gather around and do things in like an internet generative way, there's a generation growing up that really like that. You know, like actually, um, is he still here? I was talking to um, my friend Will um, earlier today on Twitter about the, the good old days when we were building something called the Dezo Project, which was trying to decentralize the social web. And what was so exciting and fun about that time was the creativity in it like trying to solve problems for lots of other people and trying to get more people involved and to see why this stuff was interesting and why it was good. And of course, the forces of evil came in and kind of fucked everything up for us. But still, some of that energy is or feels like it's coming back in the Web3 space. Now, it's very easy to be cynical or skeptical, especially having gone through the last 20 years, and you're like, fuck this stuff, I'm out. Like, it's boring. But Actually, there's a generation that, again, and we talked to some of these folks, my, my, um, my brother and um, my nephews a couple episodes ago, about how they are like really feeling like this is a, a new opportunity for them to get involved and to contribute and to build stuff that other people can um, enjoy. So, I guess I think that that angle of the creator economy as relates to games and to, you know, actually I would be interested in your rant about IP, is something for us to be talking about. Because these are some of the new assumptions that people are building into the companies that they're pursuing. And I do we we mentioned it before, but what Jack is doing with title and their I forget what it's called, the creator monetization or artist monetization piece. Like there is a whole different conversation going on about um downstream what are they called? Um, when you get paid for your songs when they get played. Brian? Uh, Royalties. Thank you, royalties, exactly. Well, like Royal.io, for example, um, which is Blau's new company, um, that's 3-L-A-U, not to go down this path too far, but just announced that he's working with Christie's to put out uh, another song where the royalties are, again, sort of shared with the fans or whatever it is, um, uh, just like he did before. So there are new ways that I think artists and creatives are thinking about how they can both compensate their early fans while also sort of getting compensated directly through blockchain technology without having to go through these middle layers that are no longer providing the value that they used to provide uh, through distribution. And I think that's super interesting, and that is where I think gaming is going to go, and it's already starting to go there.
2: Yeah, and I I would say, you know, gaming has been at the forefront of a whole bunch of things. Like, if you think about, for example, autonomous driving, I don't want to go in a big digression, but the things that are powering that, are nvidia chips if you if you mm-hmm. talk about uh, blockchain mining uh, bitcoin mining cryptocurrency mining before you had specific you know optimized chips designed for it nvidia graphics chips again parallel processing um, that's on the hardware side of things and then fortnite becoming a metaverse in development becoming more than just a game becoming a place where people socialize and Uh, shoot the breeze and so on and things like twitch right twitch had had its um just talking section or whatever it was called where (laughs) the same people you followed because of their personality inside games you're like well actually i just want to listen to this person talk right whatever's happening in their life um so we are seeking and finding new ways to be social online and because gaming is one of the things that has brought us online um it attracted us to come on. Uh, it's, it's kind of a natural conduit. And maybe bringing it back to Jack Tulsi and him being more weird and experimental and so on, gaming encourages that too. But I will, I will say on the more serious uh, side of things, credentialing ourselves online is a thing that we haven't really sold, right? I would love, for example, to have all of my successful eBay transactions speak to me being a trustworthy person on some other platform. Um, I would love to have the fact that I contributed to artists, let's say on title, if Jack wants to bring all of these things together, uh, be something that I can present about myself elsewhere. You know, just the fact that, you know, I've been a trustworthy, a good citizen online for so many, so many years but there is no place where I can present all those things. So breaking down walls between for starters games. And that's one of the things that I covered with Tim Sweeney coming over to Korea and talking about how, Hey, yes. you know, there should be one app store. You buy the game in one place and you should be able to play it everywhere. That is the trend overall for games because so many of them are turning to free to play monetized inside the game anyway. Right? So if it's free to play, you're not paying enough upfront free fee anyway. Um, but his, the thrust of his point, I think, is also where collectively our experience of being online together is heading, where why is this app and this service standalone and at this one standalone? I need to build my credentials on every single one afresh every single time. So th-
1: this is uh, – Chris, go ahead and uh, drop uh, Vlad's piece uh, in, into, the, um, yep. into the room about this. Um, so essentially, uh, Vlad wrote about, you know, on, on a very basic level, if, if you can play games on any device that's at hand, why do you have to pay over and over again for – you know, to get it on Xbox, to get it on your phone, to get it on wherever – but, when I read that, the thing that occurred to me because I've made the point before many times that like well, the thing that's gonna crack open the app stores is gaming be and and your piece made me think that the deeper level to that is that in in the sort of web three sense where um you know a game is sort of agnostic i p like it should be able to function on any platform like whereas you know again the the very basic cynical take on what Epic is trying to do is oh they 're trying to break up in the app store to improve their um, their margins or whatever if if we 're taking the galaxy brain view of it, what Tim Sweeney is trying is doing is seeing that going forward, this is absurd uh, in the same way that you should be able to get email on any device you should be able to game a specific game on any device and 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 in the web 3 sense this sort of ip and these sort of experiences should be interoperable should travel with you as you're saying where like your personality is the thing that follows you around the internet for everything you do and it doesn't stop when you leave nintendo to jump over to xbox or something like that Right now. Constant Contact. Helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking: what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door.
0: I mean, I think in, in general, what we're talking about are the different types of incentive structures that can and should exist now that we have this, you know, immutable ledger of things that have happened, whether they're your eBay sales or your tweets or something like that. And the fact that the Internet is just getting to a place now where oh, there's kind on, of.
2: I don't want an immutable ledger of my tweets, please. I them. <laughs> that that could that could be perishable. Thank you very much.
0: Well, that'll have to be written into the smart contract, I guess, for your publishing platform of choice. But nonetheless, actually, I mean, you bring up a very important point because those who write or control the algorithms, one, for how this content gets distributed, and two, who decides what gets shown and what doesn't get shown. So, for example, um, OpenSea now has a section on your profile that has hidden NFTs that have been dropped into your wallet. Because, of course, anybody can essentially mint NFTs, attach it to your wallet, and previously all of them would just show up. And so you had lots of dick pics and all this other stuff. And that became a problem because even though… I just
2: learned that. I didn't know about this.
0: Yeah, even though it costs money to mint an NFT, there's still, you know, especially if you want to get something on Steph Curry's profile, essentially like his, his NFT wall, if you will, anybody could do that. And so OpenSea realized, okay, that's a you know, vector for harassment. And so now it has to be fixed. Anyways, point being, you bring up a very relevant and important point about these things. And when we're talking about the people who are going to be designing and building these platforms, some of them will have the same set of values that determine the last 15 to 20 years of social media and the same set of experiences, lived experiences, and their same sensibilities. And so those who are figuring out how the sort of, you know, blockchain of reputation should work need to be thinking holistically about this stuff. And it gets very, very tricky very quickly. So it will be interesting to see how the game world maybe moves faster because your in-game reputation may or may not make sense in other games. For example, like the fact that I'm i don't know, really good at Halo shouldn't necessarily mean that I, you know, get a, I don't know, a free upgrade on Axie Infinity or something else. But maybe it, maybe it should. We we don't know yet, right? And so part of it is figuring out how to establish the interoperability of these platforms, and then to see where it actually benefits gameplay and and makes for improvements. I'm, I'm glad you guys agree. <laughs> <laughs> well,
2: well, so, there, well, there is I, some, go ahead. There isn't much, uh, much to add to that, but let let me let me give you like a really really condensed version of my IP rat, right, which okay, is great it also becomes super, super complex on how you're supposed to compensate the people who come up with the content. Um, the people who come up with the games. Because if you look at the actual game industry, the physical blood and flesh industry, mm. yep. it is it is fueled by people being overworked. like Crunch as totally. yep. the yep. final few days or weeks before the release of a game is a term that has come out of the games industry. So, As much as we love games, um, and as much as me personally, I'm super excited about being able to support this publisher and developer because they're doing something right. A really good example is company behind Hades and Bastion and so on. That's a team of like a dozen or 20 people originally who've been together for like a decade in indie and so on and so on. Uh, But the point is, should I just be buying their game like seven times over? I want to support them in some way, but we don't have uh clear idea on how we compensate and support those companies that we like and i don't know that it will necessarily work out with like micro transaction or micro tracking where it's like like with streaming i mean i think the streaming business model is broken and nobody's really fixed it yet um like oh you stream this song x number of times therefore that person gets that number of pennies and so on it doesn't seem to make sense to me um so that is a really big question. How do we compensate creativity without trying to commodify it and you know like selling units? Because we're not selling units anymore. So so many of these things are fluid, and if we have fluid experiences, if we're going from like Fortnite into League of Legends, like League of Legends just did an anime on Netflix in partnership with Twitch, which also got a character at the same time in Fortnite to promote that anime and League of Legends overall. So if I'm jumping in between all of these things. How does Riot Games get compensated for doing something that is on a whole bunch of different islands, let's say, which we're now becoming a a unified experience for the user? Uh, That's a good
0: question. I mean, I think that this is what some of the smart contract stuff is is actually being set up to do. Right.
1: I, right? I was going to say, that's, that's what people think the, the solution is on the blockchain,
0: right? Yeah, I mean, when it's centralized, right, like it's essentially one company that's managing the ledger of transactions and it's virtual goods and something is bought, something sold. I mean, I, I agree when you get into maybe, you know… Mm, I don't even know how to think about it, but like, like the metaverse itself, and you're moving through that, you know, who conducts the transaction? How does the transaction actually occur? And do you have to pull up essentially like an in metaverse kind of a MetaMask extension where you sort of sign things? I mean, I suppose that would be how it would technically work, but the interface for that is purely speculative at this point. Like we just, I don't think we know, but. And and that's mm -hmm. that's
2: what I'm trying to suggest. Maybe transactions are just, fundamentally at odds with what we're trying to, well, I'm I'm not building anything here, but what we collectively as humanity are trying to build online, which is this fluid unified experience. Like how does it make any sense for blockchain technology or anything else? And I'm, I'm here to learn guys. So maybe, maybe it does. If something gets streamed on Netflix and I brought you there via my game, how am I being compensated? How is that being tracked? How do we make sense of that? Like to me, the more sensible solution would be some sort of, gosh, I don't even know, but it's got to be separate. Like the economy of it has to be separate from the experience because it will be so many minor things and nudges towards, hey, you should stream this hey, you like this game, go and check out the anime on Netflix and then I'm creating business for Netflix. How much is Netflix going to pay me? How do we figure that out if it's going to be a transaction?
0: Maybe one way to think about this is, is to expect that we're going to live in a hybrid future and We will conduct a number of transactions kind of in the 2D, like, IRL space, the meat space, and then we'll spend time in different flavors of the metaverse, some that are super immersive and some that are less immersive. Some when you're in a self-driving car and some when you're at home trying to be entertained or, you know, using gloves and body suits and all the rest, who knows? But that would suggest then you can actually conduct a number of the transactions to you know, buy skins or buy artwork or buy other objects in the environments or using technology where it actually makes sense. And then when you enter into a more immersive context, then you're using the same identity, the same wallet to authenticate yourself. And so, therefore, those environments can actually look into your wallet with your permission, see what's there, and then uh, decorate or provide those objects and assets to you, right? So, it feels like we don't need to necessarily presume um, a monolithic approach to the future of Computing and technology that it's actually going to be many, many hybrid modes, and that some people will actually feel much more comfortable in some environments and some people will operate in others. I mean, even as it is now, you can go for, well, you have to install this uh, NFT uh, extension. And if you go to my Twitter profile, you can actually see my NFTs on my profile. But the same thing should be true if I go into a 3D environment. Those same NFTs, those same art artifacts will be visible and present as long as I'm there, as long as I'm sort of designated that space as being an extension of me. And I think that's the the thing that's new and different. That one, there's artificial scarcity enabled by the blockchain, and two, you have now the ability of persistence to take aspects of your identity and assert them in different environments and contexts. And we are probably at the 2005 era of the social web in the metaverse, so we still have to figure out all these things and figure out the experience, and it's still far too hard. And I guess like, that's why I'm looking at what Zuck is doing, you know, as you know, if it is his 2.0 sort of moment for Facebook, that's really interesting. And that's very important to pay attention to. And then what Jack is doing now going into square, he's focusing on money, like that's it. And that's, but, but not money as we've known it, like digital internet money, it's a completely different concepts. And so we have to be very careful about applying the ways in which we think about these things to how they're actually going to be used in those environments. Okay. So let's wrap this up. Any other final thoughts, Vlad, that we should be thinking about or any, any ways that I'm thinking about this that you think I, you know, should adjust or rethink? Like I'm, I'm learning too. Um, but like, uh, yeah, educate me.
2: (laughs) Well, well, first of all, let let me say that this would be an an extremely stimulating conversation. Uh, like like I said at the beginning, I'm excited because of the unpredictability of what's happening right now. Yeah, uh, People totally. are spending time figuring this whole thing out. I would say if you go on LinkedIn and you find people uh, listing themselves as metaverse or NFT experts, I mean, come on. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm sure there's like a hockey stick up of the number of mentions of metaverse and NFT. Well, it, it, you had I to think.
0: replace Ninja with something, you know.
2: Well, I think it's, a, it's also a beautiful time in terms of opportunity for young people. Um, we were having uh, this discussion with a colleague of mine. She was saying, what are the tips for young people? Uh, should they be getting into you know, doing 3D graphic design because the metaverse is going to need so much of it? And that's one aspect of it that's kind of more predictable. But then it just opens up so much opportunities. To my mind, exactly as you say, this is the 2005 of the social web just in a whole new environment. Well, then we're talking about like the early days of YouTube. We're talking about people like Marcus Brownlee starting off as a teenager reviewing, what was it? HP accessories and stuff. Yeah,
0: exactly. Mm -hmm.
2: So the opportunity for young people to get into this and experiment with it, uh, it comes from gaming. It comes from 3d design. I mean, when I was a teenager, I was doing all of these things. Um, not going to tell you where I got my software from, but whatever, right? It's graphic design, it's videos.
0: Um,
1: you mean it's all
2: Being creative. No Again, comment. No comment. <laughs> um, but it, it, it's just about that whole like. Let's let's use a term that's very familiar to people uh, in crypto world: permissionless, right? It just right, permissionless yeah. create creativity and innovation and experimenting, and because there are no fixed routes for this, it creates so much more opportunity and. To me, as an observer, it's just so much more exciting. So I think that's a good thought to close on. It, uh, let, me, let
1: me bring it back to my grumpiness at the beginning, because I, I want to make clear that one of the things that annoys me <laughs> about these rebrandings <laughs> is that it annoys me that the old folks are trying to co-opt this energy that's coming up from below. Like, I love the energy that's coming up from below um and so i do find it annoying that people are trying to commodify that and 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 maybe in good faith so maybe i shouldn't be that grumpy about it but um one of the things that i do see is that there is so much energy here and i don't like the idea that oh 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 shiny new thing uh let's let's quickly uh you know send that to the moon, like everything else, like, like, let it happen. And maybe it's not for you. Maybe it's for the kids to do, but you know, so that's, that was my grumpy news. Hey, Vlad, uh, b- 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 before, before we jump off, can I, can I do one more thing? That's completely, and this can be two minutes and then we all should go home. Of course. I did a, I did a story today about, um, foldable phones, uh, being up like, uh, shipments being up, like, something like 200 percent year over year whatever and you did a story on this a couple days ago um about samsung's uh foldables maybe uh being healthy and things like that uh is i've been i've been made fun of for years for like i've not been pumping foldable phones i've just been excited that there was something new in this space um should we be are you bullish on on foldable as a form factor all of a sudden
2: Yeah, well, let let me answer both of your questions. Chris was like, what should I take away from this? I think Mm. uh, if you wanted to think about gaming, you have to think mobile first. Um, Because it's already the biggest driver of revenue uh, for gaming is mobile devices. These are the things that, as Chris was saying, we have in our hands and in our pockets and about us all the time. It's the first thing we pick up in the morning, uh, which isn't particularly healthy, but it is what it is. So, mobile first, cloud first, as Microsoft, Satya Nadella has been saying since 2014, and it's completely right. Now, about foldables, I think the category is absolutely ripe for growth. Uh, Samsung is leading it. Samsung made a decision this summer to not do a Galaxy Note device, which is its second flagship for the year, and just put all of its uh, effort in the latter half of the year behind foldables. It has been paying off. You have two distinct categories. One is the one that opens and closes kind of like a book. Uh, Let's call it Bible-sized. And then you have the one that's effectively a regular smartphone but closes down like a little pocket mirror into a square shape. I like both of those. I think the technology, especially in terms of having cameras that are as good as a regular smartphone, needs to catch up. But I think, obviously, well, I don't know about obviously, but next year... Uh, affordable iphone is super unlikely, but the year after that and the year after that there's going to be a lot of pressure for apple to get on board i think the coming year we're going to see a whole bunch of other uh, android manufacturers uh, especially those from china using samsung displays most likely uh rolling out their own foldable devices so the excitement for that category is only going to grow and grow we had a couple of years where it was like they're coming and they were not there they're coming they're not there but a, a lot like 5g foldables um Especially next year, are
0: going to be a big deal. Mm. So, I, Brian, you know, I, I, I heard that story today, and I just I wanted to put it in perspective because I guess I remain somewhat skeptical about the foldable mm. thing, you know, mm-hmm. because uh, as the article which I pinned um, mentions, it says that I guess unit sales are going to go up to maybe three point eight million units, <laughs> right? Two point
1: three or something like that. Right yeah, now. yeah,
0: like. You know, sub 4 million, whereas like the iPhone 12 as of June had sold 100 million units. So,
3: yes.
0: you know, we're talking like a rounding error of a rounding error in terms of these devices. And I understand, I think, you know, Vlad, you make a very savvy point that these might be more like gaming devices um, than real, you know, common everyday, you know, popular use. Like, I don't know that you're going to get to 100 million foldable phones sold. Um, but, Like, is there a specific driving use case that you think is, you know, going to make sense here? Like, maybe the camera is not that important because people are mostly playing games on them or taking notes or something.
2: Sure. Well, here's the thing. Um, I think you're completely right. And to your point about iPhone sales, uh, Apple gets 70 to 80 million iPhones sold in the first quarter after their release. So by the end of the year. Um, But the distinction here is you had affordable under a thousand dollars since august which was samsung's latest Galaxy z flip or z flip um this is the first time you've had one sub a thousand dollars that is a really important threshold for pricing Mm -hmm. and i do think we're going to get to 100 billion foldables sold probably faster than you think which is fair enough because unlike let's say the google pixel which has been as you say, a rounding error in terms of sales every single year and going to keep saying, (laughs) we're going to be serious
0: about it. (laughs) This is the year, Linux on the desktop. Uh
2: The way that foldables are going to ramp up is going to be super, super fast. So it's going to be Oppo, Vivo, Xiaomi, uh, the free-headed Hydra that is succeeding Huawei. The moment they adopt it, they're likely to either match or go below Samsung's pricing. And the moment China adopts it, is the moment that it just kind of explodes. So like I say, we had a long time... Okay, but
0: why? Like, What is it about the product that people want more than the standard dollar-sized, you know, dollar-shaped phone?
1: It's different than what's been every single phone for the last decade. It's smaller in your pocket. Mm -hmm. Also, a point that Vlad made in the piece was, Mm -hmm. you know, Samsung made its bones by going in the opposite direction and doing phablets with the Note... When going bigger was something that was zigging when everyone else was zagging, Um, and Chris, I'll make one more point. You said, "Oh, it's a rounding error, two point three million units," but you know as well as anybody, like all anyone cares about is growth, and this is a category.
0: I mean, the 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 charts look good in terms of growth, so in that sense, it's true. I guess I'm just like. It's interesting now, now that I have my new MacBook Pro, um, just to think about the different form factors and shapes and sizes. Like, it just feels like Apple continues to make, you know, the iPhone in different shapes. Like, my MacBook Pro is kind of like an iPhone that has a really big screen and, like, a full-size keyboard built in, you know? And they have an iPad that's sort of, like, one step down. It's a lot of the same stuff behind the scenes. So, I guess I'm just trying to, like, think about, like, what is the use case that this device you know, what's its well, purpose? And, and I, I, I think th- that I think a smaller really phone is reasonable. Go ahead. It's
2: really easy to understand if you just imagine your regular smartphone and then just imagine folding off. Yeah. And and then putting yep. it into a pocket that you couldn't do before. I, uh, I mean, uh, back when I was at the verge, a colleague of mine, she wrote a, a point. Uh, she wrote a piece about just the fact that women's pockets are not designed for any sort of modern smartphone. Yeah, and so that, if, if you made the point from the a
0: fashion perspective and then the fashion is driving the utility of a product like this, then that is that is quite compelling. Because I agree. Like, in terms of women's pockets, forget it. You can barely fit, like, you know, a knuckle or two in there. It's just, it just doesn't make any sense.
2: Well, that's one aspect, but it's also – it just – much easier to fit into a shirt pocket. It's much easier to fit into a backpack pocket, whatever. And thinking about the larger ones, I mean, I have never been a person who carries around a full-size tablet, whether it's seven inches or above. But if you let me fold it and be the size of a regular phone, and again, like we're we're talking about, if I'm going to be spending my time playing Fortnite, if I'm going to be spending my time playing PUBG, etc., I'm actually really surprised that these fighting games have translated so quickly and so well to mobile platforms, Call of Duty as well, right? I want a bigger screen, yeah. but I don't want the big tablet. PUBG. So mm-hmm. and and but, the moment this, this crosses below a thousand dollars, as I say, it becomes compelling enough to where a whole bunch of people are going to get into it. I think and and then we really are gonna wrap <laughs> it up now and then <laughs> I'm gonna I'm
1: gonna say Vlad uh, pl- plug away in a second. I think Chris one way to look at it is ten years from now you could be like it could be one of those things, like you know, jean styles and things like that. Can you believe we carried around those giant bricks in our pockets when ninety percent of the time we didn't need a screen that big? But to get the screen that big, we had to always have it a hundred percent of the time. Right, right. Versus, you could see a use case in a form factor where it's like, when I need the big screen, I unfold it. When I don't need the big screen, I don't have to have it. Right? And so, like that's it's one of those things where you could look back at it on it in 10 years and be like, I can't believe we endured having, you know, if you think
0: about like the Walkman, like that would probably be a better way to convince me that the form factors can drastically change, you know, with, with like, a similar, you know, use case, but with additional functionality or something, you know, because obviously that yeah. was like the music player. And then we went to like the iPod and then the iPod sort of like led its way into like the iPhone. Um, and now it's like, let's get back to like those smaller, tiny sizes, because frankly, you've got the watch or you've got like the head glasses or, you know, you've got a bunch of different computing devices on you, including voice assistance, Assistants, perhaps you don't actually need the big you know, screen as often in your day-to-day experience.
1: Uh, unless when you want it, it's there because you unfold it. <laughs> okay. But thank you for being such a mensch and uh, putting up with uh, our scattershot approach of different <laughs> topics. Please um, uh, plug whatever you want. Tell people where to find you. Um,
2: tell us your, your, <laughs> the best movie you've seen, whatever you want. Well, first of all, I love the scattershot approach. This is beautiful. Um, if there's one thing to plug, we do uh, on Bloomberg. we have the quick take, um, Video series that we do on Twitter as well. Uh, we have a section called Tech Unscripted, which hey, it's got a short approach. Um, I participate in. Um, that's really it. Besides that, get a subscription to Bloomberg.com. That helps pay my salary. Um, if you're a billionaire, get yourself a terminal subscription. That's where <laughs> you find most of my work. It's amazing. Like huh. I work, I work much more than before, and I get my byline. Like a tenth of the time because mm. um there's that's uh yeah, because you're, you know, yeah.
0: writing for the the people who have the big bucks. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. And, but, the, and but, let me I'm say Oh,
1: really... uh, Vlad, I was just gonna say I've been a fan of yours going back to the Verge days. Um so um you've always been uh, one of the people that I, I trust on on anything tech. So I'm I'm glad to have finally spoken to you.
2: Thank you, and and I will say your, your jadedness is charming, and I share a whole <laughs> bunch of topics, and, and I love this conversation. So thank, thank you for inviting me, guys.
0: Love it, love it. All right, guys. Well, thank you once again for tuning into the Tech Meme Ride Home Experience. Um, uh, this is Chris Messina. and of course, we have Brian McCullough. As always, uh, this episode should be out this weekend. All right, thanks everybody. Thanks, guys. Bye. Bye.